Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for very interesting books, and we interview the very interesting authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have Jonathan Last on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. This is really terrific. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for very interesting books, and we interview the very interesting authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have Jonathan Last on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. This is a really terrific book. Uh, it shows something that I have, I have seen and didn't really quite realize, kind of by anecdotes. There are certain places you can live where nobody seems to have kids, and uh, there are lots of young people, but no kids. Why is that? And Jonathan explains exactly why that is and the, the repercussions of what is really a decline in the, in the birth rate, in addition to explaining why that has occurred. And so in, in that way, it's a book that I think many, many people, politicians and people who make policy and pretty much everybody should read. So Jonathan, I want to say thanks for writing the book and thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me with you. Great. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, uh, I am a South Jersey boy, born and bred. I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. I went to Quaker schools when I was a little kid, and uh, then went to college in Baltimore, majored in reasonably hard science, uh, was going to go to medical school, but then the medical schools of this country decided not to have me. I went (laughs) in search of a field without any standards and found myself happily in journalism. (laughs) And uh, there are there are no there are no tests to become a journalist. There are no no admissions boards uh, to sort of keep unfit people from practicing the art. And so I fit in very comfortably here for the last sixteen years or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so I work at a little political magazine down in D.C. It's called the Weekly Standard. It's a conservative magazine. I write about politics pretty much every four years when I have to because it's what we do down here. And you know, I go and I follow around some people who are running for president. And then in the other intervening three years, I spend my time uh, doing other stuff and following following other things that interest me. And uh, about six or seven years ago, I became intensely interested in demographics, and uh, and I had to scratch that itch, and that's what became what to expect when no one's expecting. Well, that's a terrific intro to my next question, and that is, why did you write the book? Yeah, so I wrote the book. Uh, you know, it's all the fault. If, I would say if you like the book, then we can thank Philip Longman, and if you hate the book, then you can blame Philip Longman. Uh, for people who don't know him, Phil Longman is a... He's a progressive think policy think tank guy here in D.C. He works for the New America Foundation. I think he's one of like you know the five or ten most important public intellectuals in America. He's unbelievably smart and unbelievably awesome. And he wrote a book about eight years ago now about demographics called The Empty Cradle. Uh, I am, when I read, and I'm, I, I'm a footnotes and endnotes nerd. I mm. mind those things because I love them. And by pure happenstance, I read three books all in a row, all of which had buried in their footnotes little uh, acknowledgments of Phil's work. So I went and I read Phil's book, The Empty Cradle, and it was jaw-droppingly awesome. And so I then went and, like a stalker, read everything else Phil had ever written on every other subject. Uh, and then I started like looking into him, trying to figure if I could maybe somehow meet him. And it turns out that his office, because D.C. is so incestuous, is about four blocks away from my office. <laughs> so I, I called Phil up and I said, look, you know, you're at this progressive think tank. I work at this conservative magazine. But the thing is, I love you. And uh, could I buy you lunch? And he wasn't creeped out by this because he's naive and trusting. And uh, we went out to lunch. <laughs> and he's been unfailingly kind to me, like really ever since. And, you know, and so while we're at lunch, he said, well, you're really interested in this demographic stuff. Well, you should go talk to this guy and you should talk to this guy. And here's a paper you should read. And anyway, so he, uh, he was sort of half mentor, half drug pusher. And, uh, I sort of got, I got hooked on the junk and just started, you know, like reading like the scholarly journals on statistics and demographics and like, you know, then hitting up academics and stuff for their mm-hmm. insights and, and then just writing about it. And, you know, after you write about a subject obsessively for six or seven years, you sometimes, uh, sometimes you have scratched the itch and sometimes you have not. You feel like you actually have something to say and contribute. And, uh, 
And that's what my book is. There's, mm-hmm. I think people are interested. My book is, there's nothing original. There's not a stitch of original thinking in my book. Like what I have done really is taken a lot of academic research uh, and sort of statistical and science type research, which because of my background, I actually can understand reasonably easily. Uh, and I've tried to sort of put it together in a way that makes it accessible and so that people who, you know, are interested in demographics, but who really don't want to sit and pour through like, you know, the econometric regression analyses, uh, <laughs> that they can like sit and, you know, sort of breathe through it, enjoy it, and come out the other side of it, sort of caught up on the state of the art, basically. I was going to say, you know, uh, I, I follow this topic a little bit myself. It's, it's partially because I used to work in, in, you talked about it, in Sestuous Washington in a magazine that is located in Sestuous Washington, and we uh, cover demographics. And so I had read uh, some of this literature before. When did it dawn on you that uh, there was a problem? Because I, th- I think many people uh, are turned off by demographics, and I think almost nobody realizes that America is facing a you know, the, the, the language of this is so off-putting, a changing age structure and things like that. When did, when did it dawn on you that this was really a problem? Yeah, you know, it's really, it's like the third thing you, you see when you start looking at this. Um, and it's because this is one of the situations where I think there is near universal agreement in the academic community on this stuff, where, you know, basically everybody who studies this stuff all sees the same things. The trends and numbers are pretty incontrovertible. And elsewhere in the world, like if you're in Japan or if you're in Europe and you're studying this stuff, everybody's obsessed about what they call the graying population. That is, you know, your, your proportion of old people to young people getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, and so it became pretty obvious to me, too. And it's just sort of funny. Like this, this, this fundamental fact undergirds like whole swaths of both domestic and foreign policy. But here in America, we don't really say it that often. Uh, particularly compared to how they talk about it in Japan or how they talk about it in Europe uh, or even down in Mexico now, for goodness knows. Um, so, like, the week before my book came out, Japan's finance minister, God love him, uh, held a press conference where he said that it was time for the country's old people to, quote, hurry up and die. <laughs> you know? And this this was great. I mean, you know, because this is the whole thesis of my book is that, you know, we've got this problem. We have all these old people who are living longer, and God love them, we love our old people, but we've got this giant entitlement system that is not designed to handle this. Yeah. And so something has to give. Uh, in Japan, they're like 40 years ahead of where we are, you know, like on the on the curve here. And so what I'm saying is, you know, we're we're going to be wind up where we are all sort of trying to get pieces of a shrinking pie, and we're going to wind up, you know, seeding the ground for generational conflict. You could really wind up with some ugly thoughts, and, you know, the week before my book actually drops, as the kids say, uh, <laughs> Japan's mm-hmm. finance minister basically comes out with, like, the Japanese version of Sarah Palin's death panels. Yeah. And because uh, and, that's that's the reality of it. That's how things are over in Japan and how it's going to be everywhere else pretty soon. Yeah. Well, let's actually get some of the terminology and facts or statistics down. So I remember when actually when I was in college, I think it was when I was in college, this was the 80s, people still just talked about the demographic transition. And, and uh, your book has two of them. Yeah. Yeah. So th- th- this wasn't apparent to us in the 1980s when we were talking about this. So can you talk about the first and the second demographic transition? Yeah. So the first... The, f- the first demographic transition sort of happens as we move into the industrial age, right? And what you wind up then is two things happening simultaneously. First of all, people wind up with a little bit of mastery of birth control. And secondly, they wind up with a real mastery of what we call death control. This is sort of, this is a statistician joke, a demographic joke. <laughs> uh, death control just means medicine. We get people to live longer. And, you know, it turns out that having people live on average to like the age of 60 is hugely consequential and totally out of like the historical norm, right? For the first time in, in the planet's history, you have a whole class of old people. Uh, and having those old people, A, is where your population growth, and that's really where all the population growth since about 1970 comes from. Uh, it's from people living longer, not necessarily from babies being born. Uh, anyway, so you have that happening, and as you have people living longer and mastering a little bit of birth control, the idea of family shift. And so we move from what is essentially a real tribal sense of what family is and an understanding of children and their place in the world that is essentially tribal to something where in turns we focus less on the tribe and less on the family and more on the child itself. So people wind up investing many more resources in their children uh, than historically they have. And again, I mean this in like the 1850s sense mm-hmm. of the word. I don't mean this in like the 2010, uh, <laughs> you know, the super duper Japanese calligraphy lessons for four year olds and organic clothing and you know all the Indians. You know, I, I don't mean this in the bugaboo stroller sense of the world. <laughs> I just mean this in the sense of, you know, instead of, like, popping at your kids and, you know, six of them die and the other six don't and, you know, let them do what they will, people sort of care about 
their offspring and care about sort of bettering their places in the world. That, that, that is the first demographic transition. But what happens then, beginning in the 1970s or so, uh, is you wind up entering what uh, these two European demographers, Ronald Fagan and Dirk Mandicott, call the second demographic transition. And this is a theory, mind you. This is not, you know, this is, this is a sort of grand unified theory of demographics, and a lot of people believe in it and find it very persuasive. Some people do not. Some people poke holes in it. Uh, I think it's reasonably persuasive. But the second trans- demographic transition theory posits that as we have totally mastered birth control, as we have moved towards big L liberalism, I don't mean like Republican Democratic liberalism, I mean like the Western version of liberalism, which is what we all basically like and love. Uh, as we do those things, we shift the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs all the way up to the top, where what people are really doing is they're interested in self-actualization. And so you've gone from tribalism to sort of family-centric uh, sort of focus on the child to a world in which actually all the focus is on the individual. And once you move down to where the, the, the focus is on the individual, then you wind up shifting into a world where to the extent that people have families or children at all, it is not out of sort of some historic sense of filial piety and duty. Uh, it is instead out of a sense of, huh, well, this is self-actualization. This is something I would like for my own happiness. And once you do that, people have fewer children because the dirty secret, which most people won't tell you, but I do over and over in my book, is that having kids isn't a ball of laughs. Mm-hmm. That is certainly true. I can speak to that. So uh, what we find is that in the United States, well, actually, let's introduce another term, replacement rate. Or, or I think replacement rate is the right term, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where does the United States stand on replacement rate? What is replacement rate? And what is the uh, trajectory of births over deaths in the, in the United States? So when I talk about this, what we talk about often in the book, but not always, is what is called the total fertility rate. Now, the total fertility rate is, I'd say, anybody who's really interested in statistics, tune in right now. Everybody else, let your ears put down for 30 <laughs> seconds. Uh, the total fertility rate is a statistical construct. It is not a real thing. It is a basic estimate for a snapshot in time for how many kids would every woman in this society have right now today if every woman in this society lived to the end of her reproductive years. Uh, and what this is is a pretty good guesstimate of how many kids women in that society have on average. Uh, it is not the hardest of numbers. There are other hard numbers. Uh, but for the purposes of my book, certainly for the purposes of our discussion here today, that's what we'll do. All right, everybody else can now tune back in. Take okay. Rough thought. Uh, so the replacement fertility rate, that is the average number of kids the average woman needs to have to keep your population constant, is 2.1. Mm-hmm. You have more kids than that, your population grows. You have fewer kids than that, your population shrinks. All of this is assuming we have a hermetically closed system, which very few systems are, but again, it's just for thinking philosophically about this. Uh, here in America, our fertility rate is 1.93, which is pretty great. Uh, because we have lots and lots of immigration, uh, 1.93 means that even though we're just below the, the replacement line, our population is growing. Uh, and if if we thought that we could stay at 1.93 in the long term, then there would be no reason to be worried, and I certainly wouldn't have written the book. Uh, the, the trick of this is that a lot of people who look at this believe that 1.93 is not sustainable in the long run, and that actually we're headed towards a much lower uh, fertility rate here. And, and that's, that's the cause of worry then. Uh, you know, it isn't, we're not running around setting our hair on fire because we're at 1.93 and that we're not 1,700th of a kid higher than that. Uh, we're, we're concerned and tucking at our chins uh, because we think that actually 1.93 is a way station towards much lower fertility. And why do we think that? Well, we think it for a couple reasons. Uh, and the first reason is that it has been that way everywhere else. Uh, there are no examples of countries going below the replacement rate and then stopping. Uh, typically what happens is you go below the replacement rate, you hover there for a little bit, and then you keep heading south. Uh, and so, you know, the system tends, the system being sort of, you know, fertility in a given country, the system tends to, once it begins experiencing second demographic transition and, and shrinking, hitting replacement and then diving further and settling somewhere around 1.5, 1.6. That's reason number one. Now, maybe there's American exceptionalism. Maybe we really are different. Uh, that, that certainly is possible for a variety of factors. The other reason, though, is that when you look at our fertility rates by different uh, socioeconomic and, and ethnic cohorts, you see that we are entirely dependent for this reasonably high rate on 
Hispanic immigrant fertility. Uh, when you look at middle class, you just sort of look at middle class Americans, their fertility rate is actually 1.6, where we would think it would be. Now, what this suggests, this suggests a real problem for us. The problem isn't, as some people would have it, that we have too many Hispanic immigrants. The problem, in fact, is that all these Hispanic immigrants who come here with very high fertility rates, they regress to the mean, it mm -hmm. turns out, really, really fast, mm -hmm. uh, sort of for complicated reasons. Fertility is always an aspirational behavior. If anybody has seen the movie Idiocracy, which posits that, you know, it's always the dummies who are having kids and popping them out, and the really smart people don't have kids, and that's why the future will be inherited by idiots. Uh, that is not how it works, actually. Uh, what happens is the people who are idiots is, of course, wrong and crude and reductive, but people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, they pattern their fertility behaviors on the people at the higher end. And because our middle class has very low fertility, what we have seen is uh, aggressive declines among the lower end of the socioeconomic scale here in America. So, for instance, demographers measure what's called the education effect on women, and that is for every year of schooling a woman has, by what percentage does her fertility, uh, her total fertility wind up declining. And the education effect on Hispanic Americans is nine times the national average here in America, uh, which is amazing. And it, and it shows why, I think, we cannot just sort of blithely assume that because we have this, you know, very high rates from Hispanic Americans right now, that they're going to stay elevated in perpetuity. They very well may not. And if they don't, then all of a sudden we do start to look like the rest of the world, where we're heading back towards 1.6. And the result of this, the cumulative result of this, of being below the replacement rate, is a shifting age structure. What is an age structure and why right. should we care? So the age structure is just sort of the proportion of your population in each of the age cohorts, you know, the number of five-year-olds, the number of 10-year-olds, the number of people over 65. Uh, if you picture the, the, the population graph of a 2.1 society, a society with a 2.1 fertility rate, it looks like the Washington Monument. It's an obelisk. And so that is, you know, the age cohorts, the ages are all basically the same going up until you hit an inflection point around 55 or 60 as people start shuffling off into the undiscovered country. And then it winds up, those demographic uh, cohorts get shorter and shorter and smaller and smaller as people, people die. When you are in a society with a sub-replacement fertility rate, you wind up with an inverted pyramid. And so you wind up with many more old people than you have young people. Uh, and so Japan, for instance, we look to Japan where they are the future. Uh, they are there already. They're already inverted. But if you look at their population graph for like 2035, which is actually just around the corner, uh, they're going to have many more people over the age of 90 than they will under the age of five. And you sort of think about then what that means. You think about how that shifts everything in a society, how it shifts the economy, how it shifts capital pools, how it shifts demand, how it shifts needs for things. You know, do you need more restaurants or do you need more nursing homes? <laughs> yeah. And all of this, all this sort of really changes your society in fundamental ways. Now, some of which may be beneficial, many of which may not be beneficial. But the, but the key thing in all this is we don't know. You know, what you're seeing here is a first-time-ever thing. And what's more is that if it was just in Japan or if it was just in America, then again, I think we would say, hey, well, we can manage through this. We'll muddle through. You know, we can, we're, we're resourceful people. We'll figure it out. But the problem is that it is going to happen everywhere in rapid succession mm -hmm. and that a country like Japan or a country like America dealing with a shift like this is one thing. A country like China or a country like Russia is something else, mm -hmm. right? And so you can, I think it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how, it could be destabilizing everywhere to have these sorts of shifts happening in rapid succession across every country, both in stable countries and also in you know unstable countries. Mm -hmm. So just to take the argument to kind of its logical conclusion, not quite the conclusion, there's another step, but the reason that the upside-down pyramid age structure is a, a problem is that if you cleanly divide the population between productive and unproductive, uh, the proportion is changing and you have more and more unproductive people and fewer and fewer productive people to support them. Right. And so, you know, here in the West, where we have big entitlement programs set up to take care of our, our elderly dependents, uh, so what does that mean, right? Uh, you know, what it means is either you have to cut benefits that you promised, or you have to radically increase taxes on the, the people who are still working. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that, of course, carries its own set of problems. If you increase the tax rate on younger workers, does it make it harder for them to have families of their own and, you know, continue turning that into a vicious cycle? Yeah. Uh, 
and so there, there are all sorts of problems. And you see this. I would say, you know, there's, when you look at the graphs on Japan, uh, you know, Japan has been in recession since 1990, basically. And if you were to go back to the 19, mid-1980s, when Japan was at the height of its power, and you and I are in the age where we can remember being told that, oh, in 2000, if you're going to want a job in America, you're going to have to learn how to speak Japanese. Country of the future. Japan. Of the future, right. <laughs> so, so 1984, Japan's demographers start pushing these white papers where they say, uh, hey, we don't have the demographic structure to maintain this. We're in real trouble. You know, it was danger, danger, iceberg right ahead. Nobody listened to them. Uh, so they hit the iceberg in 1990 where their, their population has really shifted. Uh, everyone says, well, it's just a lost decade. They're now in year 23 of their lost decade. And there's broad agreement by, you know, both the demographers and the economists over there that what they're really in is demographic winter, that this mm-hmm. is what it looked like. Yeah, it's sort of funny because we have a Chinese immersion school here in Northampton. <laughs> China, country of the future. Yeah, China's, basically, China's like that, except, that, except worse in a lot of ways, yeah. because A, China didn't get to get rich first, the way yeah. Japan did, uh, and B, they've got this really unstable autocratic regime yeah, ahead yeah, of it, yeah, which who yeah. knows what's going to happen when yeah. all these pressures are brought to bear. Yeah. I'm always fond of pointing out that uh, we are very poor at picking the country of the future, because you know it used to be it was Germany for a while, and then it was the Soviet Union for a while, and then Japan, and China, and we just never seem to get it right. Yeah, and the future never quite gets there, right? I mean, that's yeah. is really funny. It's not just that there's always a new future. It's that you know, <laughs> the future we're predicting never even really yeah. emerges all the yeah. way. There's some quip about Brazil. I can't remember what it is. Brazil, country of the future. Oh, right. And always that, will yeah. be. Yeah, right. So then one of the difficulties, one of the things you point out is entitlements, in fact, because I, and I can speak from personal, not personal experience, but I know people in, in academia. They are of some years, let's put it that way, and they work for state institutions, and these state institutions made bargains with them back in the 60s or maybe even late 50s. Uh, in which they said you're going to get two-thirds of your salary basically for the rest of your life after you retire. And they make a lot of money now, but they don't yeah. do anything. <laughs> they make a lot nice more money than all of them make. Yeah. Now, you know what, but, but here's the, you know, to, to flip it around, uh, you know, on the one hand, now from where we sit today, we say, well, this is preposterous. That's not sustainable. How can we make that deal? But on the other hand, you know, when the, when those deals were accepted back in the 50s and the 60s, you know, I mean, these people had no reason to expect that, you know, for yeah. years later, somebody would want to be yanking the rug out from underneath them. Right. So it's, it's, just a, it's a hard situation all around. And, you know, eventually we're going to have to all hold hands together and jump off the cliff. Or we're really are, we really are going to have generational warfare. You know, yeah. we really are going to have uh, a set of politicians who are beholding either to rising workers or to a big block of retirement boomer seniors. And they're going to force the other side to get a haircut. I think that'll be pretty pernicious. Yeah. Well, it kind of happened in academia just in my generation because it was – there was a report that came out from, I think it was the Carnegie Foundation or somebody that said that, you know, the professoriate was getting very old and they're going to need a million professors. And then one professor, whom I happen to know, sued, claiming age discrimination when Harvard University tried to make him retire. He won. This set a precedent. And so all the jobs that were supposed to open up, of course, they didn't open up because these people kept working because, you know, they were going to live to be 90. And the guy I'm talking about is still alive. Yeah. Well, uh, not break, you're not breaking rocks when you're teaching it. Uh, no, not, not really. No, not, not really. So uh, anyway, I, I absolutely see that. So, so t- tell me this. I mean, this is, this is sort of the money questions here. Um, one is, what, why are people having fewer kids? What, what other forces, sort of systemic forces, have depressed the birth rate in the United States? So, you know, so I, we talked about the second demographic transition. I told you that that was one of the two theories on this. Yeah. I mean, there are really two lenses you can look through when you look at this stuff, and one of which is the, the second demographic transition, which is this sort of big, grand, unified theory. The other side, the other sort of you know, side of the academic research is through a series of causal forces. And so this other side looks at the world, and it tries to isolate the effects. And so it looks at, say, the entitlement state here in America. And there's some, some pretty good pieces of analysis and, and good you know, regression series works on this, which suggest that Social Security and Medicare, because A, they create moral hazard for parents because they provide the same kinds of benefits that historically children, grown children, have provided to their elderly parents, uh, and B, because of the tax burden, that they depress fertility by 0.5 kids, so about half a kid here mm-hmm. in America. Uh, and so there's, there's that school which says, well, you know, we could just isolate all the different effects, and that's what these are. It isn't some big totality shift of sort of, you know, the, the fundamental character of man, but it really is uh, a series of causal forces and that this is what's going on. I actually, you know, my, my own view of this is that, you know, I, like President Obama, I reject a false choice here. Uh, why, can't, <laughs> why can't both of these theories yeah. basically be right to some degree or yeah, another? Right. Uh, and so, you know, what, what I say in the book is, you know, we've got this giant constellation of forces, so, so vast as to really be uncountable. Some of them are economic, some of them are cultural. Uh, I mean, just briefly, the cost of having kids has increased 
really, really significantly since 1965. Uh, you know, about a 40% cost increase over 1965 just in the everyday stuff that you buy, like, you know, strollers, diapers, uh, housing, healthcare, etc. Uh, then you tack on college, which did not used to be something that everybody used to do. Uh, you know, as recently as 1979, less than half graduating seniors went to college. Today, it's over 72%. Um, so all of a sudden, we mandate college. and At the same time, we are mandate college, mandating college as sort of, you know, entryway to even the lower middle class. Uh, college itself is getting fabulously expensive, right? Since 1965, the real, real dollar cost of college increases by 1,000%. Uh, and you total all this stuff up, and you factor in, like, you know, the opportunity costs of lost spousal wages and or child care. And you wind up, you know, I always put my Dr. Evil voice on, with a $1.1 million tab <laughs> for having a kid in America. Yeah. Uh, and that's real dough, right? I mean, yeah. the average cost of a house in America, I think, is $189,000 today. And so that means that having a kid is like buying, you know, what, six houses all at the same time, except you can't ever sell them. And after, like, 15 years, instead of having your mortgage half paid off, the kid stalks off to her room and she slams the door and she says, I hate you, Daddy. Right. So... You know, like, if you're going to look at this all through the lens of, like, rational enlightenment, homo economicus, uh, you know, decision-making, it does not make sense to have kids. Uh, and then on top of that, you have other stuff, cultural stuff. You know, you have the way we've changed since the sexual revolution. You know, regardless of what you think of the sexual revolution, what it really did sort of at the most basic element is that it tore asunder these three things. And the three things were the connection between having sex and being married, the connection between being married and having kids, and the connection between having kids, uh, having sex and making a baby, right? And so you have the pill, you have the rise of cohabitation and the rise of divorce, and you have the rise of the acceptance of out-of-wedlock birth. And those three developments, which are really, I think, the core of the sexual revolution, are what wind up separating those, those three acts. So now you, know, you can have sex whenever you want, and you, may, you probably won't have a kid, you can have sex far afield of marriage, uh, and marriage is what it is. You can have, have a kid outside of marriage if you like. You can have a kid inside of marriage if you like. You know, it's all the same to everybody else. Uh, and this has had the effect of, A, pushing up and sort of making people have sex earlier on in life, but then pushing the age of marriage backwards. Mm -hmm. And one of the real thing, one of the big important things here is watching that age of first marriage creep backward and backward and backward. Today, it's close to 29 years for men, uh, 27 and a half or 28 years for women. And the reason that is so crucial is because biology isn't particularly malleable. Uh, you know, after 35, it becomes increasingly difficult for women to have kids. After 39, it's really, really hard. And so we're Anything that happens in the culture to shrink the window between age of first marriage and end of reproductive cycle is going to probably wind up forcing you to have fewer and fewer kids just because your opportunity to get in there, have the kid recover your life after it's been blown to hell, uh, which is what they do, <laughs> uh, and then think about being stupid and having another kid. It just, it just shrinks it, and you wind up... The, the really, I think the really evocative thing in all of this for me is that Despite what you read in places like the Atlantic or the New York Times Magazine about the, the terrible bourgeois patriarchal outmoded conceptions of family and child rearing, uh, most the, the average man and woman in America today have the same number of idealized children as they did 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, they still want two and a half kids. And the thing is, we're not getting there. And the reason we're not getting there is in large part due because that window has shrunk and we're not having time to have the kids that we want to have. Yes, I, that, that's true of my own personal experience. I can say that. I also was in school until I was about 30. I remember when I was in graduate school and my mother kept saying, are you still in school? What could you be <laughs> learning there? Are you slow? Also, I'll say this, that my uh, my wife and I bought a stroller when we had our first kid. It cost more than my first car. What kind did you get? Uh, you know, it was a not a bugaboo. It was... Rockstar baby? No, it was not a rockstar. McLaren? No. It was a, Chico? No, it was not a Chico, definitely. It was Bob's... Bob? Oh, the Bob's. You got the Bob. I think you got the Bob, yeah. A fine choice. Yeah, I think... The Bob was, is a fine choice. It was nice, too. Yeah, it was nice. We just got the... We still have it, and we... Actually, we have two of them now, so it's like having two cars. Yeah, I buy these junkers, and I sort of fix them up. Anyway, so I, I, that, that's all very persuasive. So other places have faced this problem, as we know, and they have tried to raise the birth rate. How have they tried to do that, and how successful have they been? Yeah, so people have been trying to do this dating back to Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus passed a bachelor tax to try to raise fertility in the Roman Empire. It did not work. Uh, Joseph Stalin tried this, actually, uh, towards the end of the Second World War. He realized they didn't have enough babies, and you know, the meat grinder of the Second World War was really 
hurting their population. So he coined a series of motherhood medals, which if you go to eBay, actually, you can pick up for about 12 bucks. Great. Um, just in case you want to have a stocking stuffer for yeah, someone you love. Uh, let me tell you, that's a marriage ender. Yeah, it really is. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so the, 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 historically, people have tried to do this. Uh, historically, they have not met with much success. What I would say is sort of to, to be crudely reductive, and please understand I'm being crudely reductive just for the purposes of the conversation. Uh, there are like two schools of thought on pronatalist policy. There's the liberal school and there is the conservative school. And I will try to describe them for you briefly. The liberal school says uh, we need to make it easier for working mothers. We need to have lots of state-run daycare. Uh, we need to mandate that companies behave in a certain way with regards to providing, uh, providing family leave time, maternal leave time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there is then the conservative side. The conservative side is all sort of tied up with market-based incentives. And so the conservatives would have, uh, you know, a, a baby bonus for having a kid. So, you know, $5,000 for a first kid, uh, as they had up in Quebec a few years ago, uh, maybe $8,000 for a third kid. In Singapore right now, I think it is $8,000 for a first kid, 18000 for a second child. Wow. Uh, yeah, in Singapore, they, they have these great things. Singapore is like the perfect like conservative dreamland and all mm -hmm. this. Uh, they have 401k-style savings accounts where the government matches your savings dollar for dollar uh, into an account every year, and you can then use that to pay for child expenses. So you can mm -hmm. use it to buy diapers. Uh, in Singapore, they also had real, real hardcore conservative uh, conservative policy, not policy, I would say conservative rhetoric about uh, sexual, sexual things. So, like, the Prime Minister of uh, Singapore, two, two consecutive Prime Ministers, had his long uh, sort of public campaign against abortion, long public campaign against single motherhood, against cohabitation. Uh, they sort of, they make Rick Santorum look like a dirty hippie. <laughs> and none of this stuff has worked. Uh, so, you know, so the conservative stuff, Singapore's fertility rate went from 2 to 1.3 to 1.1 to the point where they are now below 1, mm. uh, one of the lowest fertility rates the world has ever seen. Uh, you look at Scandinavia, you look at France, which are the sort of, you know, the, the, the big shining light for the, the liberal pronatalist policies. And in Scandinavia, the average fertility rate is about 1.6, 1 1.7. It's lower than what we have here. In mm -hmm. France, it's a little bit higher. They're about 2.08. But that is not because of their daycare centers. It's because of immigration. Uh, when you look at you know, native French fertility versus immigrant French fertility, native French fertility is 1.7. Immigrant fertility is about 2.6 or mm -hmm. maybe even 2.8 or above. Mm -hmm. now, so all of this is a giant failure. There's been a lot of study on this. You know, it's because it is basically just epidemiology by policy, right? So, uh, and the, the, the best survey of the literature suggests that for every 25% uh, spending increase you, you, you do lay out on uh, pronatal policies, you wind up with a 0.6% uh, increase in the fertility rate in the short term, and that bumps up in the long term, meaning like over the course of 20 years or more, uh, all the way up to a 4% increase in fertility. And so... This isn't to say that there aren't effective pronatalist policy measures out there, but we haven't discovered them yet. And, uh, and I think that this is sort of chastening, particularly to people like me, because the last chapter in the books like mine are always how to fix it by doing what I tell you to right. do. Uh -huh. And uh, my chapter on that sort of fails miserably because uh -huh. I sort of throw my hands up and I say, well, you know, people have been trying this for a long time. Yeah. It doesn't really seem to work. Yeah. I don't know. You guys think about it. Well, I did. Actually, I learned an interesting thing. I don't know if it's true or not, so I don't know if I learned it about uh – the French system of free daycare for um, families. The uh, I think they're called the École Maternelle. But um, so, according to my correspondent, there it's an unfunded mandate. So basically, what happens is is that you uh, you get pregnant uh, and um, and you ask for some time off, and then your boss says, "Yes, you have a right to this, but we have no money to let you off. So uh, please stay at work." Yeah, they and there's you know there are big waiting lists actually to get into the universal daycare. The yeah. universal daycare is actually not. I the, the closer you get to the French example, the less bow of a bow ideal it looks yeah, like. Right. Um, now this is you know like my, my friends on the left always say, well you know we just need we just need universal daycare to be like the French, and then all of our fertility problems right. are solved. Yeah. And I, I always uh -huh. tell them, look. If you want to argue for universal daycare on its own merits, that's fine and that's awesome. And yeah. the truth is, like, if I sort of sat down and thought about that pretty hard for an hour or so, I might even go with it. I'm kind of a squish. But, but you have to understand that you're arguing for it as just sort of a good that is consistent with our values, not as some silver bullet. 
Because mm-hmm. we, we've run the numbers on this. Lots of countries have tried it, and it isn't a silver bullet. Yeah, yeah. I should say the uh, colmatronelle is actually a different thing. I was wrong about that. This is what I was talking about was actually um, a parental leave. So this is a, this is a mandate in yeah. France that you can parental leave, and uh, apparently it's unfunded, and so nobody gets it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, the, obviously we have to ask this question, what can be done? Yeah, I don't Lenin. know. I don't even quote Lenin. <laughs> We're what, screwed. What, what is to be done? Uh, you know, so here's the, here's the thing. As my, my friend, the demographer, Nick Eberstadt over at the American Enterprise Institute, likes to say, uh, in the long run, everything is fine because fertility rates are not constant across populations. And in the long run, the people who have babies will inherit the earth because their fertility rates are above replacement and it will all be fine. And he's absolutely right. What worries me isn't the long run. It isn't The concern isn't that we're like going to go extinct as a species or something. The concern is the medium run. You know, And so in the medium run, where we are putting enormous amounts of stress on these nice pillars of Western liberalism that we like, uh, when we are faced with a world which has become increasingly destabilized because of the same effect happening in illiberal places, uh, what happens in, on the road to the long run? You know, in other words, does, does the nice world that we have here get broken on the way to the long run? And I don't know the answer to that. Now, the question about, so what do we do about it? And uh, what I suggest is that we sort of make a serious study of what has been tried before, and we try to attack the problems in, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I promised myself I'd make it through this entire book promotion tour without ever saying the phrase outside the box. Yeah, um, okay, well, and, uh, and so I won't say that, but we should try thinking differently about it. Uh, you know, as a, for instance, I think you could think about bank shots here in America that aren't directly related to fertility uh, because our problem is not one of needing to get people to want babies. People already want babies. The problem is getting people to achieve the family sizes that they already want. And so you could build more highways, for instance. A lot of people don't like to hear that. But, uh, you know, why do we have suburbs? I live in the suburbs. The suburbs blow. I don't live there because I like it. I live there because I can get a lot of land in a big single-family home with a yard and a swing set for my kids, mm-hmm. and I can still have access to a job inside the city in Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, the highways are what let me do that. Let's let you get from low land costs to high concentrations of jobs. So if you expand the highways, you actually make it easier for people to get low land costs and be near high concentrations of jobs, that in theory winds up helping you uh, solve that Gordian knot. The real way to cut through is teleworking, you know, and this is an open question as to whether or not you can ever really make teleworking scale out. Uh, now, if you could, it does a couple things. It, it really cuts that knot on terms of tying job opportunity to land costs. But the other thing it does is it introduces the possibility of a return to the multi-generational home, which is the historical norm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way the world used to work was uh, you grew up in one place, you sort of settled in that same place, uh, you raised your kids. When your parents got old, they moved in with you. They took care of the kids while you worked, and then you took care of your, care of your parents while they were in decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of whole compact started falling apart in the 70s here uh, just because of simple mobility. Like people didn't, you know, you grew up in Topeka, Kansas. You didn't settle in Topeka, Kansas. You mm-hmm. moved to Chicago or you yeah. moved to you right. know, Fort Wayne or something else. And, uh, and anyway, if we could introduce the possibility of returning to the multi-generational home, that solves a bunch of things, I think. Like, it solves the child care thing, it solves the, the job thing, and it solves to a large degree even the elder care thing. Uh, the question is, can you really, in the sort of advanced economy that we're, we're headed towards, can you make telecommuting actually work? Uh, and I think that's an open question. Mm-hmm. So you don't think that any sort of exhortation or um, argumentation or change of values or a call from God or anything like that is going to change people's mind, and the old people are just going to say, I don't want my pension, and young people are going to say, I'm going to have more kids. No, I don't think so. I mean, this is, you know, I, I say this over and over again in the book. Uh, I am uh, I am not in the business of, like, castigating people who don't have kids. Right. I mean, they should have kids. Yeah. Uh, for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it, it, it would just be mere jealousy on my part. Uh, let's, be, let's be honest yeah, about no, it. Yeah, it's true. That's, uh, it's pretty sweet. You know, I, and the truth is, I, it's, it's a great gig, and I celebrate their choices. And really, I say, you know, go see a movie on a Wednesday night and think about me. God love yeah, you. Yeah, right. Uh, but the other thing is, A, you, you know, look, people aren't stupid. Like, you know, people who don't want kids don't want it for a reason. And yeah. you know, they, they know what it is that they're avoiding. Right. Uh, but the other thing is that, again, when you look at the numbers, you look at the numbers here in America, uh, while sort of... The desire to be child-free has certainly increased from where it was 50 years ago. Uh, it used to be about 2% of uh, adults finished their life without kids. Now it's closer to, to, uh, closer to 18%, I think. It's still, it's still a very, very small number. 
And most people, the median experience is that people want kids. Uh, as I said, the ideal fertility number, the number of kids people say they would like to have in a perfect world here in America is 2.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our real problem isn't trying to like, you know, lecture and browbeat people who don't have kids to having them. Uh, what we should be doing is trying to help people who do want kids to achieve mm-hmm. their achieve their dreams and their desires, and that's uh, that's a good thing. And I think there's a con- there's actually actually quite a compelling national interest in helping people to achieve that. It isn't just the right thing to do. It's going to be good for everybody in the long run if we can help them do it. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. You know, right? If people want to make that decision, that's absolutely fine with me. It really is. I mean, and I had made that decision before I got married, and and then I changed my mind. Uh, so you know, if, I would even take this. I'd even take this a step further. This is how much of a squish I really am. Uh, so it, I don't know if you remember this. Ross Douthat at the New York Times got into a whole bunch of trouble back in January when he wrote a column about this stuff, and he said that this was decadence. It was decadence in society that was having leading people to not have kids, and he became because he had the temerity to say this history's greatest monster. Uh, and I. You know, I, I I can see that there's you know there's something about decadence when you look around like the, the doggy world. I would say the doggy world has the whiff of decadence about it. Uh, if you look at the way that people pamper their dogs these days, but in another way, what we're seeing is the opposite of decadence. It's like hyper responsibility and hyper uh, hyper deferral of of pleasure. And so you sort of look at the world of like highly educated, high income people who aren't having kids. And a lot of these are people who, you know, they didn't screw around in high school because they want to go to a good college. They go to college. They don't drink and get stoned all the time. They work really hard because they want to go to a good law school. Uh, they go to law school. They work really hard because they want to get into a good firm. They get into the firm. They bill 90 hours a week because they want to make partner. And all of a sudden, they're 33 years old, and they haven't, you know, maybe they've gotten married, but maybe they don't have kids, and they stop to think about it. And then they decide, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Whatever this is, this decision to not have kids at that point isn't decadent. No, it's absolutely, it's absolutely not. That, that I mean, is this correct. is like hyper-responsibility in a way. And so that's why, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the business of, like, beating up on these people because I, I get it. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of them. But, you know, there but for the grace of God went I before I wound up having kids. Yeah. I, I actually used to work with Douthat. And, oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard his arguments before about this. Yes, yeah. I've heard his, his arguments about this before. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure he even believes them. To be honest with you, uh, but I, you know, it's, it's really odd because I would talk to him about these things and he'd lay out various reasons for them. And I'd say, oh, then you do believe in um, gay marriage or you do think that people should be free not to have to, you know, because, I don't know, it's sort of internally incoherent. And a lot of it is a kind of a dog and pony show. But I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and I know that in my own case, uh, I really wanted to bootstrap myself out of where I had come from. And uh, it took a long time and I had to work really hard and I didn't have time for, for kids. There was just no way. That I was going to, and you know, if, if it's decadent to basically say to yourself, well, I'm going to actually, you know, improve myself and get a good job and be a productive member of society, then that's decadence. But yeah, and you know, and I mean, I, uh, what I would do, and that's what I, I talked about a little bit in the book, the, the way I would frame it, not quite decadence, but it's a different way of perceiving the world and your place in it. And this is, you know, one of the things that I found really evocative in the book was uh, the fertility differentials on religious practitioners, not religious adherents, but religious practitioners. Because what we have in America right now, and this is kind of weird when you think about it, there are almost no sectarian fertility differences. You know, your fertility rate, if you say you're Catholic or you say you're a Baptist or you say you're Jewish, is basically the same. What, where we see the differentials is in your attendance of religious services. And the people at the highest fertility, the people who show up to worship services once a week, and it doesn't matter if they're Unitarian or Quaker or Mormon or Muslim mm. or Catholic or Protestant. Uh, and that, to me, is actually what gets at it, because what those people have, and I, I think what unites all of those people, what unites the Unitarians uh, with the Mormons, is a worldview which looks not just at the now, the now meaning the totality of your life, but it looks at the past before you to which you have some filial duty to, and it looks at the future beyond you, to which you regard as a thing of hope, uh, and a thing that there is some obligation associated with. And I think that that is actually the worldview, but that's not a decadent worldview that it's fighting against, uh, the sort of the now worldview, which looks at, you know, the idea of you know, having a career and buying a house and being responsible. That's like modernity, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's the problem. The real problem we're, fight, we're fighting here is the problem of, you know, the, the way in which modernity changes how we view the world around us. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty hard thing. <laughs> that's a pretty hard thing to fight. Yeah, that, that, is, that is very difficult. I mean, I know that the apprenticeship, uh, as you work toward uh, what will be your job, is a very, is, has been growing and it is long now. Yeah. Um, wh- whether it, we are actually throwing good money after bad and sending everybody to college and so on and so forth, I don't know. But it does take longer. 
And now that we have mastered birth control, it certainly isn't the case that there are lots of accidental babies. I mean, there are actually lots of accidental babies, but the proportion of sex acts to <laughs> accidental babies is quite low. Right. So, you know, it's, it, I just don't see a way that I, – I, I don't see a way that we can reduce the age of first uh, child. That, that doesn't seem to be doable at all. I well, mean, you know, given, yeah, but again, bank shots, bank shots, right? And so if you reform the college system, and I think almost everybody would tell you that the college system is broken as a market. Lord right? have mercy, don't get me started. I mean, right. So if you reform the college system, I think that goes actually not a long way, but certainly some way towards helping to lower the theoretical age of first birth. And that's, that's not a reform that is about fertility. It's not about natalism. It's about something different. Yeah. But it's about addressing this sort of market failure, this thing which has happened, which has had as a side effect of whatever else the sort of college failure has done, as a side effect has helped push the age of first birth backwards. Yep. Yeah, and so I think that, like I said, there are bank shots that you could look at trying. And, you know, if they work, they work. That's great. But maybe they won't. That's fine. We mm-hmm. just have to sort of come in with our eyes open and be experimental. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think as my wife would point out where she hears, a lot of these issues have to do with feminism as well, because like it or not, the burden of taking care of children is usually borne uh, in, disproportionately by women. And uh, so anything that we can do actually to help women um, do what they need to do in order to have sort of, mm, what would you call it, sort of, well, careers, just full stop, then uh, I think that would be to the benefit of, 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 of fertility. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I would actually go slightly different direction on that, too. One of the things we notice in fertility differentials, particularly this, is a, this has been well studied in Europe, which is why it's interesting over there, uh, we look at the role that men play in caretaking of kids in the northern European countries versus the southern European countries. And much higher fertility in the north, you know, in the Scandinavian countries and in France, much lower in the south, uh, traditional Catholic Spain and Italy and Portugal and, and, and Greece, which is not traditional Catholic. Uh, well, you would think, well, these are patriarchal Orthodox societies down in the South. They would have more babies. They don't. So what are the differences in the North and South? Well, part of it is women's participation in the labor force. Women in the North uh, work outside the home at a much higher rate. But the other thing is the actual just sort of time diary number, a number of hours that the guys are spending on the kids. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's more than twice in the North, what it is in the South. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is probably an important thing. Well, I mean, I think that, ought yeah. to roll up their sleeves and, you know, get involved in the I, messiness. And, I totally and agree with that. I mean, that, yeah. that is really where it has to start. And yeah. I know that, you know, in my case, that transition, and, and I do a lot of, I'm, I'm told you're not supposed to call it child care when it's your own. But <laughs> I was told that by somebody. But anyway, I, you know, I, I do, you know, three to four hours of just solo child care every day. And, uh, and my wife has a job. But but it really does have to begin at home. I don't think there's any question about that. And yeah, I think many men, you know, even, you know, they, they're all well-intentioned and stuff, but then they get into it and they're like, hey, I don't really want to do all this stuff. And my wife will take care of it. Well, there's a reason I want to do it because it blows, right? Yeah, it does. It's no fun. But, no, I, but I, on the I, other I, hand, you know, you should do it because it's a job and you should, you know, look, right, you yeah. shouldn't have the kids if you don't want to roll your sleeves up and get a little dirty while you, yeah, while I you think do that's it. Ex- you know, I think that's exactly right. I really do. I mean, there are things that can be done in that way. But then you're talking about an entire sort of, you know, it's, it's been a slow sort of transition toward, uh, you know, a change in what we conceive of as masculinity or parental role in, in, in child rearing. And it's, for me, it's been a difficult thing. I mean, I know that I was brought up in, in the Midwest and I was a jock and all these other things. And my mother didn't want to work. My father left. And so she had to go to work. Uh, but, but, you know, my sister, for example, who's, you know, two years younger than I am, she never wanted to work. And uh, you know, she went to college and everything, but she never wanted to work. She did end up working, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's really, you have to, it's a significant change in what we think of as traditional roles for parents. Yeah, and you, the good news is that it is changing. So you look at the time diaries, they, the time diaries they do, it's, you know, you collect men and women, you know, you block out how many hours you spend doing this, how many hours you spend doing that. And since 1965, uh, fathers have more than doubled the number of hours a week they spend on child care. Mm-hmm. And so that's good. I think, you know, we're heading in the right direction, I think. And that's, yeah, uh, I would, but I, I have to, I, my wife might listen to this, so I have to admit that she still does more than I do. Yeah, well, and they, and they do. In fact, you know what? What's really what's really amazing is that uh, today, working mothers. You you would think. I think the stereotype is that today's working a lot of working mothers today just sort of outsource all the kid care to the nannies. They don't really raise the kids themselves. And the data shows that that is absolutely not true. Uh, and in fact, a working mother today, on average, spends more time a week on childcare than a stay-at-home mom in 1965. Did. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Why, why is that? 
because what the stay-at-home moms did used to do in 1965 is to send the kids out into the yard to play. Yeah. <laughs> it was that just, is pretty much right. Yeah, they I remember say, that. Look, yeah. go play. Go do something. We have to do housework. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And today, you know, we don't do that really. You know, yeah, we, we hover. We take them to swim lessons. We take them to right. calligraphy lessons. Right. We do this. We do that. Uh, and we are really clearly really killing ourselves to raise these kids yeah, right. It's really quite, it's really true because I do remember, I mean, people, I think that they don't believe me when I say this, but my mom used to say, go outside, come back when the street lights come on. Cause we live in the burbs, right? Come back yeah. when the street lights come on. Don't come back before that. <laughs> you know, I, and that was the way of the world. Yeah. Fine. And, you know, of course, here I am, and I'm making it sound like I think this is like, you know, the cool butch way to raise kids. Oh, and of course, when my kids go out, like, you know, to play in our little, you know, ex-servant cul-de-sac. You know, by God, like I'm out on the porch watching. Oh yeah, no, I, I, never I don't trust my no. kids. No, so, I don't, I'm watching them every minute. Crazy yeah. hypocrite. I, I watch them absolutely every minute, and you know, if they want to go play in the playground, I go with them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's kind of crazy too. But anyway, that's that's the way of the world. It's a very complicated thing, and I'm really glad to see that you admit that it's a very complicated thing. There is no easy answer here. People do things for good reasons. They don't do things frivolously, and so there are no bad guys and no good guys here. It's just. You know, the is, kids are the bad guys. The I'm kids comfortable are, oh my that. God, don't give me They're terrorists. terrorists. Yeah, but, you know, it really is one of these situations where it's, you know, demonizing people that don't have kids, calling them lazy or something, and, or, or, you know, claiming that men don't you know, take enough care of their kids or saying that Social Security is at fault. It's really such a complex problem that, you know, it doesn't admit of any easy, easy solution. And, and uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tough one. You know, if, if there are, like, any big lessons to take from my book, it's that uh, things change things are complicated and and that anybody who tells you that uh, X will happen on date Y or that if we do Z then A will happen is selling you something because none of us are hopping out of a DeLorean from the future. That's that's exactly right. You know, stuff changes. Really the best we can do to try and understand this is like look at the data, mine the data, uh, be very sort of cognizant and trying to understand how it is that we got here to this moment and understand like what this moment really is and what it looks like. Yeah. And then try to think carefully about the future, always understanding that you know, stuff changes and you got to sort of you know, be careful when you, when you push on one thing, something else you're not thinking about might pop out. Yeah, no, that's exactly true. I mean, that's when I teach people about conservatism, that's more or less what I say. The things grow organically. You can't really understand them because they're so complicated. And so you probably shouldn't just go and fiddle with them. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't know why things are working the way they work, yeah. and you never will. So get over that. Anyway, uh, we've been talking with Jonathan last about his book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting America's Coming Demographic Disaster. Um, uh, our traditional final question, Jonathan, on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? So let me say, what are you working on now? What I'm working on now is uh, a month before my book came out, my wife had a kid, our third, mm. and what I'm working on as of right now today is sleep training this new baby, which uh, if people who have kids, they know what sleep training is. For people who don't have kids, sleep training is one of these many, many things about children, which are these charming euphemisms, which are designed to mask the true horror of yeah, it, like it's... the miracle of life, or fussing, which really means crying and screaming uncontrollably, yeah. mm. and uh, sleep training, which sounds like, you know, oh, hey, you just teach the child how to sleep, really mm. means not sleeping while you're child screams at you for nine hours during right. the night. Well, that's, that's a big yeah. project. And I know well, you told me... That's uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, right, that's a big thing. I know you told me before the interview that you only had three hours of sleep last night, and I can say this, you're better on three hours of sleep than I am on a full night's sleep. So yeah. God bless you. you're really, really good at this. So um, I, I want to say uh, thank you. I'm Marshall Poe, the uh, editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and this is the New Books Network that you've been listening to. And I want to thank everybody for listening, but I especially want to thank Jonathan Last for talking about his book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.